If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, we're going to be... I know I keep telling you, Revelation, I should never say anything. I should just keep moving. Don't even... We'll get there someday. Maybe not. Maybe the Lord will come back. Wouldn't that be great? Again, Mark chapter 13. It was, it was more than 30 years ago. By the way, the story I'm going to tell you, my, my wife said I could tell you, okay? So, sometimes you have to ask your wife if you can tell a story. She said yes. In fact, last week, she said to me, Why? I thought you were going to tell this story. I hadn't even kind of thought about it. But she, I said, well, that would be a good story. So she even prompted my thought on this. It was 30 plus years ago, and we were in Virginia. I was just finishing up college there in Liberty. And... Um, uh, I was done. Uh, we had not yet uh, got this church, as far as a call to this church. We, this week, we have been here for 30 years. The, this story kind of rang that true. 30 years ago, this week, is when Saul and I and Ashley came here. Uh, I can't believe it. But anyways, back 30-plus uh, years ago, because this happened on July 3rd, right? Is that July 3rd, my daughter's birthday? Um, we went to the hospital, Soul was nine months plus pregnant, and uh, she was going to have her first child, our first child. And again, I was, what, 23 years old? You were 23. You know, young kids going to have their first child. And I remember going to uh, uh, the, the hospital there in Lynchburg, and, um, you know, they got her all prepped, and uh, she's laying in the, um, she's laying in the, um, on the uh, bed there, and um, it, the whole birth thing took about 24 hours, so we were there for quite a while, you know, first one. And, um, you know, I was trying to be the, the, the loving husband, you know, give me your hand, what do you need, you want some ice chips, you want some water, do you want a magazine? And uh, she's a real trooper, I mean, I've been there for all the seven births, and she's just a real trooper. And anyway, so she's laying there, and and um, after a while, she said, you know, hand me a magazine. And, and she found a, uh, and she was reading, I don't know, you know, Woman's Day or something, I don't know. Anyways, and, and uh, what was interesting is she, she was saying, oh, there's one. Uh, oh, there's one, you know, little contractions. And, and she just said, oh, hand me another magazine. I think she even made this comment. You know, I don't know what people, you know, really complain about. I mean, it's not that hard. <laughs> I, I told you, she let me say this. This is... Then the first one came. <clears throat> and I remember then from there on, it just was hard. Now I'm telling you that story because in, that's what Mark, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse in this passage is talking about. He's saying that there's going to be birth pangs. But then finally there's going to be the final great birth pangs and you enter the tribulation, and then there's going to be the ultimate birth pangs, that's a great tribulation, and they just keep working up, just like a woman's going to, have a, uh, going to deliver a child. At first, the pain is far apart, not quite as intense, but then they get closer and closer with intensity and pain, and finally, by the way, a woman would never want to go through that if in the end there wasn't something great, right? The baby. And in the end of all these birth pangs, I just want you to understand, the baby is, in this illustration, is Christ coming back. Okay? That's, that's the end of the birth pangs, Christ comes back. We're going to see that whole thing right uh, here today. But um, again, that's why he talks about, uh, look at verse 8. He, he talks about all the problems, and I'm going to refer to this in a moment from now, but he says these are just the beginnings of sorrows. New American says these are the beginning of birth pangs. All these things in this world are going to have to happen. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, sorrows, uh, tremors, terrors, uh, signs in the sky. All these things have to happen. But he said these are just the beginning of birth pangs. When you get into the tribulation, now you really get intensified. The last hour before the birth of the baby. And then the great tribulation is like the last, the last ten minutes. Okay? Now, let me uh, give you a quote by Vance Havner. He's an old uh, country preacher. He said this, quote, No Bible subject holds more practical implications than the matter of prophecy. 
No Bible subject holds more practical implications than the matter of uh, prophecy. Prophecy is very practical. Because prophecy puts life in perspective. That's why it's practical. Prophecy puts life, your life, here and now, the present, in perspective. We get our minds on all these things, so many concerns. When you start reading prophecy and studying and understanding prophecy, you say, wait a second here, there's a bigger picture. Prophecy puts life in perspective and and what we should really value. Now again, in quick review, um, I think we can come to an understanding from the last few weeks of studying this that there is no hope for a better world. I mean, we pretty much come to that conclusion. There is no hope. There is no utopia coming around the corner. No age of Aquarius. That's not what this is all about. See, if you think that, then you're going to be real discouraged. You're going to be very, very discouraged. Because you're looking at all this stuff and saying, well, I thought it was supposed to be this. No, no. That's not what this is all about. We're not heading towards world peace. Again, we're devolving, not evolving. As I said last week, the second law of entropy tells us that things are breaking down. Things tend towards disorder at every level. And you see that even among society and how life in this world is going towards disorder. So even though this world is advancing technologically and educationally and scientifically, now that is true. You're going to say, right? I mean, we, you know, you got these little things hanging on you, right? And you sometimes wish you could just go, you know, leave me alone, give me some peace. But even though that's happened, we are not advancing morally, socially, or spiritually. That's not happening because you have the influx and the continuous uh, uh, multiplication of falseness, false teaching, error, darkness. You know, it just seems like uh, they're multiplying at a rapid rate. So all these things, because we live again on a dangerous, corrupt planet. Now again, that sounds negative. <laughs> That sounds negative. Um, that's the reality. By the way, I said last week that Christ was a pessimist. And someone told my wife, I think it was Leany, said, is he a pessimist or is he a realist? Oh, it wasn't Leany? No. Oh, this was a compliment, Leany. Well, maybe it was. <laughs> someone told her. I thought it was Leany. I, just gave, I gave her the credit. He said, is, is Christ, because I, I said Christ is a pessimist. I said, as I thought about it, no, I would say this. Christ is a realist with a pessimistic view. Because the the view that he's given is the real view. But it's pessimistic in the sense that this world, which we already know sin is affected, is devolving down. So Christ is a realist with a pessimistic view. That's fine. See, he's but by the way, he's optimistic because what is what does he do in the end? He comes back and reestablishes a thousand year reign. That's very optimistic. And and if you're a Christian, you're with him. Okay, so that's very optimistic. But between now and the end of the seven-year tribulation, it's pessimistic. Now, as we enter Mark chapter 13 again, I want to give you the context just very quickly. This is Passion Week. He's coming to Jerusalem on Monday. He went to the temple and cleansed it on Tuesday, basically preparing his entrance on Wednesday. And on Wednesday, he comes into the temple. And for the first time for hundreds of years... He preaches in the temple truth. And at the very end, he excoriates the religious teachers there and basically is saying this. You are, I mean, he said it. You're apostate. You are not true Judaism. Okay? Uh, You're against God. And condemns that place because of the teaching in that place. Okay? Because of the teachers in that place. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. And again, that's why by Friday, just two days later, they want to kill him. See, they, this has been in their heart, but when this final gauntlet comes down, I mean, they're infuriated. He leaves the temple on that Wednesday afternoon, and it talks about him walking towards the Mount of Olives. And the disciples in Mark chapter 13, now we can pick it up where you're at, Mark 13 verse 1, and his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Uh, Matthew says, what wonderful buildings. 
you know, they're just walking past the Kidron up to the Mount of Olives, looking back on the eastern gate. There's the temple, the gold uh, that's overlaid on the eastern wall. And, uh, I mean, just the beauty of that structure and all the different buildings that were associated with the temple. And they were just saying, man, what a, what a wonderful temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe the teaching inside the temple is not so good. They just heard him say that. But look at the temple. You know, sometimes we get enamored by the building. And that's where he said in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left on another. That shall not be thrown down. So, and we saw that in AD 70, literally every stone was taken upon another and thrown in the Kidron trying to find that gold because of the great fire that had melted the gold. Uh, all the gold had melted into the crevices of those stones when the Romans came in to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And not one stone was left upon another. Which again just shows what? It points to the fact of what? Christ is God. Because only God would have known that. Only God would have known. Not only was the temple going to be destroyed, but not one stone left upon another. That had never been done. Even when Nebuchadnezzar did it, that, that was not done. Now again, just the context. This is Wednesday. Thursday, he's going to have the uh, he's going to have uh, celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Thursday night, betrayed. Friday, the and Friday morning, as far as the the rest, the betrayal, finally the crucifixion. He's crucified on Friday. So I mean, all this is happening in just a very short time, just a few days, a couple days. And then he sits down. Look at verse three. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Opposite the temple, four of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, <clears throat> the inner core, perhaps the other ones were there, but uh, it says asked him privately. So whether they asked him privately and then he spoke publicly or just answered to them, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Okay, you just told us the temple is coming down. You've told us at, at least three other times that you're going to die. Give us the good news. (laughs) I mean, they're following him because they're saying, you are the king, you are the Messiah, we know that. You have come to establish David's kingdom. We know that. Now you're telling us this death thing and destruction. Tell us when the end of the time will be. In fact, Matthew records a little bit more. It says, Matthew, again, remember, as we're looking at Mark, there's two other Gospels that you really have to put like this. You have to put Matthew, Luke, and Mark together to get the full picture. That's why I'll keep saying Mark said this or Luke said this, because this is what's called synoptic Gospels. They, they work together. You need a harmony. You need to be able to say, okay, Mark said this. By the way, I'm using Mark because it's the shortest by, by uh, purpose, on purpose. Because if I was to use Matthew, this would be like a, a, an eight-week study. I'm just trying to do it in two or three weeks. Mark is the shortest account. We're just going to use Mark. But then we want to add a few other pieces, what Matthew said or Luke said, because it gives you a bigger picture. Okay, But Matthew... Oh, let me say this. If you don't have a Harmony of the Gospels, you may want to get one. You really might. Because if you're in the book of... Uh, you know, Luke, and you say, boy, sounds odd. Once, many times when you get a harmony, and you just, uh, a harmony, all they do is they just put all the different passages sequentially, you know, chronologically. It makes total sense. Oh, I understand why he said that, because he had just done this, but it's not recorded in the book of Mark. It, it's recorded in the book of Matthew. Okay? Um, but anyways, but Mar- uh, Matthew 24 says this, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So this... Rest of this chapter is him answering that question. Will be will be the signs of your coming and to the end of the age. In other words, you could say it this way: Could you give us a big? Could you give us a big picture of from now to the time that you return? And that's what he does. He gives us the big picture. He tells you what history is going to be from this point to the time that he returns. Very very helpful, right? Again, he's a realist. He's an optimist because he's our Lord and he's coming back. But, he, but this is very pessimistic. The view is. Now, things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. And the first thing he says in verse 5 is there's going to be religious deception. There's going to be huge religious deception. And Jesus answered them and began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, but I, 
and saying, I am he, and it will deceive many. Deceive, deceive, deception. There's going to be huge deception. I didn't last week, but let's go over to Matthew chapter 7. Let me show you the deception, because this was at the beginning of our Lord's ministry. And I'm saying this for two reasons. One, it's amongst us, or it's around us, but I hope that this is not amongst us. What do you mean amongst us? I mean, I hope that this is not you. What do I mean? Well, look at verse 13. Matthew seven thirteen. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Now, there's a, there's a broad way that leads to destruction. That's hell, eternal damnation. And there are many who go in by it. Let's go on. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there is few who find it. There's going to be two ways. One is the broad way. The other is the narrow way. The broad way leads to destruction. The narrow way leads to life eternal. But he said there's only a few that find that. But then he says this. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. See, this is the deception that he also refers to in Mark chapter 13. There's going to be a lot of false Christ. There's going to be a lot of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. When it says sheep's clothing, it means they look like Christians. They look like they are on God's side. They are walking with Jesus. They're in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, ah, inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And you do. You've got to watch a person's life. Watch their character. Watch what they really live for. And, and false teachers, you can start identifying, oh man, ungodly. You can watch a false teacher and you can start saying, oh, okay, I see where they're... Because you'll know them by their fruits. But, but what my point is, is this. The many follow the false teachers. See, I want you to connect verses 13 and 14 with 15. Do men gather grapes from the thorn bushes or figs from the thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, and again, he's talking about false teachers, true teachers. Uh, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Again, false teachers, false prophets, false apostles. Let me give you one last piece, though. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What do you mean, does the will? Because out of the heart comes the actions, and here it's, it's saying out of the heart, he, they're doing God's will. It's not because you do right that you are right before God. It's because you, you know His Son, you've been justified by faith, and, but your heart produces good works. Your heart from within, produces true righteous works, okay? Again, you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith, but if, if it's true faith, it produces good works. That's what Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 8 to 10 say. Okay, so not everyone that comes to me will do it, but he who does the will of my Father. Now, underline the word, verse 22. Many will say to me, that many in verse 22 is the same many in verse 13. Many are going to go in the way of destruction. Many down the broad road. Verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast demons out in your name, and done many wonderful uh, things in your name? Wait a second. These are people that say they're Christians. (laughs) You You don't go around saying, I'm doing a miracle in Jesus' name, unless you've already identified yourself as a Christian, except... These are Christians who have professed Christ, but don't possess Christ. So the many of verse 13 in the broad way is the many of verse 22, who say, haven't we done all these things? And then I'll declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, your heart has not been transformed by my power. Uh, You do not fall into the category like Galatians 2, verse 16 says this. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus... Excuse me. Even we 
have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ. How do you get saved? You're justified by faith, then your heart is changed and new, totally made new, and therefore you produce works of righteousness. What's wrong with the person in verse 21, in verse 13 and 21? They've never been regenerated. They've never been truly saved. Now what's going to happen in the last days? A lot of deception. And I think we're living in, I mean, we are living in that day, right? But this is where we get caught. What does it say here? You judge a person by their fruit. Because you know it comes from a heart. A godly heart produces what? Godly fruit. Godly root, godly fruit. Ungodly root, what? Maybe religious fruit, but not godly fruit. And we run around and we have, a, I think, a hard time discerning between the false and the true. And you know why? Because we are so concerned that if a person just says, I believe in Jesus, well, well they're, you know, they're saved. But then we have this real hard time of saying, but why do they act that way? Why don't we just say this? They're deceived. <laughs> they're the false. They're on the broad way. They need salvation. I don't care if you made the commitment. I mean, excuse me, if you made the confession, have you made the commitment? Okay? Uh, not you, I'm, I'm just saying whoever. Uh, it, it's the change in the heart. We're justified by faith, but if, if, it's, true, if, it's, if it's truly that we're justified, then our, then our works will manifest it through godliness. Well, that's quite a detour. I wasn't planning on... But do you see the many? Do you see how that is the deception? There's going to be great deception. You know, Rob Bell comes out... He was a, a previous pastor, I think... Um, but he comes about like, uh, out with this like wider mercy, God loves everyone, and we scratch our head and say, well, how is it that he comes to that conclusion that everybody in the end will be saved? Because we have a real hard time because he's a pastor saying this, he's false. See, we want to say, well, he's saved, he just misled. No, no. He, how about false teacher? Just say it that way. Now it makes total sense. Okay, I got it. He's a false teacher. I mean, if, come, if someone comes along to you and says, you know what, everyone in the end is going to be saved, don't say, well, he's a believer that's misled. Just say this, he's a false prophet. Okay? It just makes things real easy. Okay, we've got to move on. Don't get me down these rabbit trails. Okay, the devastation of the world, that's verse 7 and 8. Roars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, terrors, and we said they keep growing, Right? And then he said this, there's going to be distresses, persecution. Look at verse, uh, second part of verse 9. They'll deliver you to the council beat, and they'll beat you in the synagogues. That's Jewish persecution. He's telling his disciples, as the world continues on, the persecution is going to get greater and greater and greater. And what have we found? More people died for Christ in the last century than all the other centuries combined. What Jesus said is exactly true. Points to what? He's God. And then Gentile persecution. You'll be brought before the rulers and the kings. That's the second part of verse 9. Now again, he keeps bringing up, uh, uh, from this point on, he brings up at least nine encouraging words. Look at verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. In other words, this is what he's saying. In spite of all the hatred... All the persecution that happens to believers, the gospel will continue to go forward. Isn't that encouraging? You can't stop the gospel. In fact, the world would say this, persecution will stop the gospel. Like, when, when you have persecution, it will destroy the advancement of the gospel. You know what happens? Exactly the opposite. You, put, you, you, you uh, persecute Christians, you know what happens? The gospel continues to grow. You can't stop because, it's, because the power is not found within them, it's found within God. So I think this is an encouraging word from our Lord in verse 10. The gospel will advance. And then he gives another one. Look at verse 11. And when you're arrested, don't worry about what you're going to say be, uh, beforehand. Why? It's going to be given to you in that hour. What? By the Spirit of God. We get all antsy. Oh, what am I going to say? Now, if you, if you put it in context... The next day, he's going to be celebrating the Passover with his disciples. You know what he's going to be talking about? We call it the upper room discourse. It's at the upper... In fact, let's just go over there. We might have to be here till 1 o'clock, but we'll do it, right? We're going to get it done. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Some of you visitors, you're like, oh, what? No, no, we're going to get the... 
And it's great to have you here. If you're here visiting, it's great to have you. I hope you come back. Uh, John chapter 14. This is the upper room discourse. This is the next day. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples the Olivet Discourse Wednesday night, sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking as the sun setting over the temple. The next day, this is what he's going to tell his disciples. Look at verse 15. John 14, 15. If you, keep, if you love me, you keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper. That word another is uh, alos, not heteros. Heteros is, you know, like heterosexual, male, female, different. Alos means same. I'm going to send someone just like me. Who is he talking about? The Spirit of God. I'm going to send you another helper. Well, hey, just 12 hours earlier, they're, they're being told wars, rumors of wars, persecution, terrors. <laughs> he says, listen, I'm going to leave you. Can you imagine the terror in their heart at that point? But I'm not leaving you an orphan. I'm going to send someone just like me. In fact, he's going to be in you. He's not going to be beside you. He's going to be in you. Okay? Another helper. Look at verse 21. Uh, no, excuse me. Uh, verse, uh, no, no, 17. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. I mean, I just told you that. But I want you to see that. I'm not going to read these because of time. But he repeats this theme of the Spirit of God, the Helper, in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 14. Chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. Chapter 16, 7 and 11, and 12 and 14. He, he repeats this theme five times. He just told them the night before, I'm leaving. All these troubles are coming upon you. Next day, but I want you to understand, everything is under control. Everything is in the Father's hands. And you've got the Spirit of God. And my question to you is, are you, if you're a believer in Him, you've, you have faith in Him, justified by faith, are you trusting the Spirit of God to empower you and work through you? Or are you trying to pull this Christian life off on your own? Because I've done that before, right? We've all done that. You know, just, I can bear the burden. No, you can't. That's why he repeated it five times on the upper room. You desperately need me. I'm not going to be here in physical form, but I'm sending one someone just like someone just like me, the third person of the Trinity, the helper. Are we depending on him? I think a lot of times we don't. We get arrogant, proud. I can do it on my own. Supernatural enablement. Supernatural. And then finally, it's going to get so bad, verse 12. What? Family betrayal. Not only Jewish persecution, Gentile persecution, we're talking family betrayal. Brother will betray brother. Father is child. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. What do you mean endures? Those who are truly trusting in Christ, given them the faith from God, will continue to endure. So it's not that you get saved because you endure. It's that you endure because you're saved. Or to say it this way, we demonstrate our salvation by our endurance. Now some of that was uh, review and some of it was new. But you got to get that. See, you got to get the context here because, you're, oh wow, okay, I got it. I mean, look at they, I mean, look at how much stuff these people, these disciples have been handed in this last four days. They come walking in on Monday, the big crowd. They go in on Tuesday and they see their uh, rabbi, their Lord, cleaning out the temple. And there's a lot of anger, by the way. Not only in his, righteous anger in him, but a lot of unrighteous with everyone else. And then they go back on Wednesday and they say, wow, you know, he is excoriating those guys. And you can probably see the Pharisees, you know, talking, how are we going to destroy this guy? And then he goes back up and, yeah, what a wonderful temple. Yeah, not one stone on another. And let me tell you, and it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. You think, I'm coming back, okay, playing this death thing and set up the kingdom. It's not going to happen that way, guys. It's going to be a long period of time before I come back. And that's where we get into verse 14. This is part four, the tribulation to the return of Christ. Verse 14, so when you see the abomination of desolation, there's a big change 
Okay? In Mark 13, and I want you to see this. In fact, you could even draw a line between verse 13 and 14. Because he is talking about, you're going to be hated for my name's sake, and whoever endures to the end shall be saved. And now all of a sudden, he switches gears. See, he doesn't tell you, oh, and by the way, between verse 13 and 14, there's thousands of years. Well, no, actually, verse up to 13 is, is what we call the church age. And now all of a sudden, in verse 14, he, he plops down a major event. Uh, it's called the abomination of desolation. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, oh, that's good. I'm glad he told us what it was, otherwise we'd all be scratching our head. I wonder what it is. Okay, okay. spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Now remember, we studied Daniel. That was the reason I studied Daniel, primarily, or one of the main reasons for that part right there. Remember Daniel had his, uh, the vision given by, by God through Gabriel to Daniel, and there was 70 weeks are left for the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. And the first 69 weeks, which was 483 years, 69 weeks, weeks being seven, 69 times seven years, we determined that, is 483 years. 483 years from the time of the decree of Artaxerxes to be, uh, re- rebuild the wall to the very day that Jesus walks into the temple on that Monday was exactly 483 years. 173,880 days, whatever, right? You, you get the point. Exact precision. Our God is a God of precision. But then there's going to be this, the clock stops at the time he, he enters Jerusalem until what is we call the 70th week of Daniel, the, seven, the last seven years. See, Every one of those year, years, 70 weeks of Daniel, every one of those weeks represented seven years. So there were 69 weeks, 483 years. This last year is also one week, seven years. And in the middle of the seven year, we find this. Could you throw up that? Remember, this is what I've just been talking about. Seven weeks, 62, 483, church age, the wars, the rumors of wars, all the mess that we're still in. And probably, if we were to look at a time frame from God's perspective, I'm saying probably, I'm not trying to predict, we are probably right here. Okay? There's still one week to be had, one seven-year period that's called the tribulation. And you have the tribulation, and this is the first part of the tribulation, and this is the second part. This is called the great tribulation, last three and a half years. Jesus jumps and says in verse 13, he's talking about this, and then he jumps to here, because Daniel was very specific what would happen in here. He just, he just I mean, this is the great thing about our Lord. He just summarizes everything, and he just points you back and says, look at Daniel, you'll figure it out. I mean, you know, you can just look at Daniel, and we'll look at there in a minute. But this abomination of desolation, I just want you to understand, happens in the middle of the three and a half year period. Now, let's go to Daniel for a second. Daniel chapter 9. Look at... Uh, <clears throat> and this is the prince of the people, second part of verse 26, and he shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be like a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's seven years. One week, seven years. But in the middle of the week... Well, do you have that thing? I, I should just be showing you. But in the middle of... Where did I throw it? I feel like I'm a magician. I can't... No. Okay. But in the middle of the week, he breaks the covenant. Look at, look at the second part of verse 7. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the, sac, uh, end of the sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations. That's it right there. And Daniel talks about this abomination of desolation. He just said desolate in verse 26. An abomination. This is the abomination of desolation. Now let's go back to, to Matthew, or excuse me, to Mark. I don't want to rush this, but I want you to see it. Daniel uh, uh, three times mentions this abomination of desolation. He does in chapter 9, he does in chapter 12, and tells us it's 1290 uh, days, three and a half years, plus an extra month. And then he also tells us in chapter 11 of a person who is going to be coming 
that is a preview of the final Antichrist. And we find out through history that was Antiochus Epiphanes. He came in December, I think, 15th, 167. He was a Seleucid king. He, what he did is he was going to, I think he was trying to conquer Egypt. And he was the ruler of that area of Jerusalem. And he went into Egypt and the Roman, the Roman general, I think what he did is, the Roman said, general said, you're not going any farther. And I'm gonna, he drew a line around the guy, and he, a, a circle in the sand around the guy. And he said, and before you leave here, you've got to make your decision. Are, are you going to listen to the Roman government or are you going to do your own thing? He was so furious. He went back from Egypt into Jerusalem, which was really part of his place to reign. And he hated the Jews so much, he went into the temple, sacrificed a pig, splattered pig juice all over the place, made the priests eat the swine, and then set up a, an altar to uh, Zeus. And that is a preview of the coming Antichrist, who in the in the uh, tribulation time, we'll do the exact same thing. Except this time, it won't be an altar to Zeus, it will be an altar to himself. Okay. In fact, 2 Thessalonians tells us, to see, if you want to know the big picture of the Antichrist, at the beginning of the seven-year period, throughout, I mean, again, I'm just putting, I'm just giving you the, without having to deal with all the scriptures. We're going to see this, by the way, when we get to Revelation 13. Someday we're going to get to Revelation 3, and I'm going to tell you. At the beginning, he establishes a peace contract with Israel. In the middle, he breaks it. That's what you just saw. And at that time is when the abomination takes place because now he says, you're no longer going to worship Jehovah. You are going to worship me. And you find this in 2 Thessalonians. This is what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. The man of sin, that's the Antichrist, son of perdition, exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God. He sits there showing himself that he is God. So he sits there. Now, Matthew says this. Look at what or Matthew, Mark says this in chapter 13, verse 14. Now, this is what Jesus says. So when you see the abomination desolation, he's talking about that second three and a half year period, Antichrist, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand, standing where it ought not. Now, we, I just read in 2 Thessalonians, he was sitting. What do you mean standing? Well, when he's not sitting there, he has an image apparently of himself to be worshipped by the Jews. So that's when, see, Jesus says, listen, this is, the, this is human history. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. But then there's coming a time, just like the prophet Daniel, which was not 530 years earlier, okay? From the time when Jesus was speaking, 539 years earlier. Just know that when you see the abomination of desolation, where? In the temple, standing where it ought not be. See, because it's an it's a abomination. The word abomination means repulsive, disgusting, abhorrent. It's, it's disgusting to have this in the Holy of Holies. Just know, then you are in the final days. In fact, now you are entering the great tribulation. Well, let's go on. That's the, uh, the timing of the abomination. How about the audience? Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. What do you mean the reader? See, this is not for the disciples. This is for the reader. What do you mean the reader? <laughs> During the tribulation period, there's going to be so much havoc. There's going to be people, the pagans, the ungodly, the ones left behind before the tribulation or the rapture. Left. They're going to be looking. Well, give me some answers here. Give me some answers. You know, I mean, I mean it says in uh, Daniel chapter 6, a quarter of the earth, uh, the world population is going to be destroyed. Give me some answers. I mean, if you saw a quarter of the population destroyed, would you want to have some answers? So he actually says, no, no, let the reader understand. And let those who are in Judea. So that's, that's who, we, who the audience is. It's, it's for those people that are going to actually, they're not saved, they're therefore not taken out at the rapture. I have good news for you, by the way. <laughs> I do believe that Scripture is very clear, very, very, very clear, that before the tribulation starts, those who are the bride of Christ, those who are truly saved, will be taken out. And what's left is, the ungodly. 
Because the tribulation is all about God judging the earth, God judging the ungodly of the earth, and God judging Jew, the Jewish nation of their lack of, I mean, their idolatry, and that they would turn to Christ. We don't need to be here. But let the reader understand. And then look at the response. This is the response, the emergency response. Uh, when you're in Jerusalem, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, then recognize that your desolation is at hand. And Mar- Mark says this, that was Luke, Mark says this, I, uh, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of the house. I mean, just get out. Flee. Because <laughs> these are very, very hard times. Look at verse 19. For in those days there will be tribulation. Matthew adds great tribulation. This is the greatness. This is, this is the second three and a half year period. This is the final end of the earth. Okay? Of, of the earth that we know. Just get out. But look at verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. See, that's another word of hope. <laughs> Wait a second. God is in control. I mean, if he hadn't stopped the days, if he had let it gone on for 20 years, everybody would be killed. But because of the elect, he stops the days, the amount, he shortens the day. By the way, he needs the elect. See, what happens is this. People will go into the tribulation not having been saved. That's why they weren't taken out at the rapture. But as the, as the hard times come, now they turn to the Lord. And they get saved, but now they're tribulation. They're in the tribulation. See, he needs, well, it says in Zechariah, a third of the nation, of at least the Jews, will go through the tribulation, get saved, because he needs people to enter the kingdom. There's going to be actually people who have never been glorified that enter the final kingdom. So he needs to shorten the days. And this is the precision of, Christ, of God, Christ God, I mean the, the Trinity. He judges the world, judges the Gentiles, judges the Jews, turns the Jews to himself and still preserves a third of them, including Gentiles as well, that are still not killed by the end of the very end of the tribulation so that they might enter the kingdom and populate it. And what does he say in Matthew 25? Come ye beloved. Um, oh... I've got to read it for you. Matthew 25, 46. I should have it. Come you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's them. See, he has to shorten the days because he has certain ones marked out that are going to enter the kingdom not having been glorified. The kingdom is made up of those who are glorified and those who are unglorified. And they're going to start having children. There's going to be people in the kingdom that have children and populate the earth and for a thousand years. See, that's why you see at the end of the millennial reign, there's a rebellion. You can't have a rebellion amongst all glorified people. <laughs> because glorified people are perfected. Well, who are the, who's the rebellion? Well, you're going to have normal people having children and they're going to populate, but by the end, there's going to get, they're going to get tired of Christ's rule and they're going to try to overthrow him for one last time. I mean, this is the deceptiveness of sin. We always try to do it our way. You know, I'm going to run out. I'm out of time. Luke adds this. This is going to happen until the times of the Gentiles. We mean times of the Gentiles. Well, Daniel talked about this, started the process, the book of Daniel. Remember Babylon, Persia, Greece. Rome, those are the Gentiles, those who were taken over. In other words, once Babylon stepped into Jerusalem, began the times of the Gentiles. That is continued. Even to this day, Jerusalem is not under Jewish rule. We know that, right? You got some mosque there. But there's going to come a day at the very end of the tribulation period where the times of the Gentiles end. Christ comes back as the ruling king. He sets up his kingdom and he rules in Jerusalem. First time, thousands of years that a Jew, that the Jewish nation is ruling in Jerusalem and on the Temple Mount. Okay? All right, well, let's just move on very quickly. Then there's going to be some fraud. Verse 21. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe him. False Christ, false prophets will arise and show great signs. See, 
Not, it's going to get worse and worse, but even in the tribulation, it's going to be ramped up <laughs> to the very end. But look at what he says. There are going to be great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, this is a promise. Because he doesn't say, if possible, to deceive even the believers. See, if, if it says believers, then someone might say, well, that puts the uh, emphasis on the person keep believing, right? But he didn't say that. He said the elect. That's, you know who elects? That's God. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, these people will be rescued and they will continue on and not be deceived. Not because of their belief, but because of my choosing them. It puts the, uh, it puts the uh, emphasis on God. If possible, even to the elect. What's the point of the statement? Not possible. I mean, they are going to be so deceptive that if it wasn't for the power of God, they'd be deceived. But you know what? You can't deceive the elect. Why? Because it's the power of God that's preserving them. It's God that's preserving them. So that's an encouraging promise. God's keeping power of God. The sovereign keeping power of God. Perseverance of the same. Look at, he adds another thing, verse 23. But take heed. See, I have told you all these things beforehand. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Boy, you talk about prophecy being practical. Thank you, Jesus. You're telling me how it's going to keep getting worse. I turn on Fox News, it's getting worse. But you know what? If I keep my heart and say it's all about this world getting better, like a post-millennialist would do, I get discouraged. But if you're a pre-millennialist and you say, you know what? Jesus is coming back. That's when it's going to get good. Everything up to that point is going to be hard. And you just say, this is how it is. And you don't bank your life on this earth. You don't bank your happiness in your retirement. You don't bank your blessedness in the things that you have. But don't Christians do that? No, Jesus said it's going to get really bad. Look at what he said, verse 23. Take heed, again, I told you these things. Accuracy and the precision of prophecy. But then, verse 24. But in those days, now this is after the tribulation, okay? After those days, what days? After the days of the tribulation. But in, in those days, or, and then he says this, after that tribulation, Matthew adds great, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. That literally means extinguished. The sun goes out, and it says this, the moon will not give its light. So now, have you ever been into a really dark cave? One time in Penn, down in the Pennsylvania, I went in, you know, and they always shut the light off. And we always hear this, ooh. You know, like, turn the light on, man. I mean, now what you do is like this. Click. You know, you have all these <laughs> cell phones on. so you could, But you get the darkness, right? Now think about this. If the sun goes out. Actually, you know this. At the very end of the tribulation, when the sun finally goes out, it can only last for moments. I mean, it can't go off for long. I mean, we will drop into the negative Fahrenheit, right? I mean, you can't go out for... So at the very end, though, the sun goes out, the moon does not give its light, which is just a reflector of the sun. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, then the baby will be born. Then, we'll, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. That's when it's going to happen. See, people say, oh, Jesus came back in 70 A.D. You know, the tribulation was 70 A.D. and that's when Jesus came back. Are you kidding me? It says in Revelation that every eye will see him. And that's exactly what's going to happen because there's going to be total darkness. What does he say? He's going to come back with great power and glory. That's a Shekinah. You know, like the birth, the Shekinah glory. We saw it in the temple, the Shekinah. The Jews were led by night, by the, 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 the fire and the pillar, right? I mean, the, the, the Shekinah. This is blazing glory. And every eye will see him. In verse 27, And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect. This is the third time the word elect is used. He's used it three times in his past. He's getting a point across. He's saying, listen, it's not about you have put your faith in me, but you know who holds you to the end? It's my power, not yours. See, he's not using the, all the believers will be gathered. He's saying his elect. That puts the, 
that puts the responsibility on God's shoulders. God, his elect from the four corners, or four winds, and from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. What is he talking about? He's collecting all the people that are going to inherit the kingdom that is given to you from the foundation of the world. See, he's saying, listen, at the very end, everything goes out, they see the blaze, his angels collect all the Christians, all the believers from around in the world. They will be judged, according to Matthew 25, the, 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 uh, the goats and the sheep, and the sheep will then enter, the goats will be judged and the sheep will enter the kingdom. Including the, in the sheep, or the sheep there would be the 144,000, all the Jews, all the Christians, uh, all the Gentiles that are saved in the tribulation, they're called tribulation saints, but then we also come back with him and, and rule and reign. So all these things are happening. And I think that's where we end, okay? Uh, there's so much more, but you get the picture. That's why I, I say it's so sad. You know, you, you're working with somebody and they swear and use the Lord's name in vain. You know, they, they count Jesus Christ as so trite. You know, oh, they would never say anything against Allah. But Jesus Christ, whatever. <laughs> this, I didn't even tell you about the tribulation. Next week we start, hopefully get there. But the point is, I mean, by that point, all the water is destroyed. All the living things are destroyed. You know, most of the population of this earth has been destroyed. The lights go out. The sun goes out. Total darkness. It says that people even, you know, cry. The rocks fall on them. They have heart attacks because of their fear. And then all of a sudden, poof, and power and great glory. And he's there. And he's coming back. And he's coming back, first of all, to judge the ungodly, and then to reward the godly, and then to set up his kingdom. And are you living for that or for yourself? Because it is so easy in this world with our flesh to live for ourselves, isn't it? But see, we need, that's why Vance Havner said, this is the most practical stuff, prophecy, because it puts everything in perspective. It puts our priorities in the right priorities and say, you know what, Lord, one, let me make sure, examine myself to see if I'm in the faith. Let me make sure I'm a true Christian because I don't want to be the many on the Broadway. But then if I'm a true Christian, Lord, let me live for you. Because everything in this earth is going to be destroyed in the very end. And then he comes back and he sets up his kingdom. Man, live for Christ. Don't live for yourself. Let's stand as we worship him.